This is the time of year for special birth stories. And so before I begin today, I want to tell you one of my own, the birth of this platform address. <laughs> While not usually counted among the miraculous stories of the season, it is worth telling because it's certainly part of the religious life of this community. This platform grew out of one of our deeply valued and meaningful rituals, a time in the life of our community that speaks to our hope for the future and our care for each other. I am talking, obviously, about the auction. This platform was up for grabs at last year's auction, sold to the highest bidder, which in this case was Perry Sedman. Now, if you were there that evening, you may remember that Perry shared with the entire gathered community that he planned to use his auction platform to have me speak about ethical sex. <laughs> Indeed, he threatened to do that even before making the winning bid, which was almost enough to get me to bid myself. <laughs> but as you may have guessed from the title of this platform, Perry changed his mind. If you are still hoping for that ethical sex platform someday, well, I will be auctioning off another platform again <laughs> at this year's auction. I'm glad, though, that Perry changed his mind because it's given me a chance to think a little bit about the topic that Perry chose. Perry asked me to speak about the intersection of religion and politics about our role as a religious and ethical community in helping to shape the political landscape. He wanted, I think, to challenge me about what we could be, what we as a community could do to influence the ethical conversation in America. And conveniently for me, that is just the kind of challenge that I like. There are lots of parts of religious leadership that I enjoy from hospital visits to platform writing to our winter festival last night. But there is a special place in my heart for social action. I remember my first time raising my voice as, at the time, an almost clergy person, as my mother would have called me the very nearly reverend. <laughs> it was at a state health care rally in Annapolis during my internship in Bethesda. I was just one of many speakers that day sharing how our religious values stood at the heart of our support for expanded health care coverage for Marylanders. But I caught the bug that day. I caught the line up with other clergy and speak your mind bug, and it hasn't let me go. This will come as no surprise to many of you, I imagine, who know the work that I've been doing to advance marriage equality in the District of Columbia, work that I have found invigorating, exciting, and which I really hope will be, come Tuesday and the final vote from the City Council, very satisfying. I will mention that there is a marriage equality rally tomorrow night at the Kennedy Rec Center. There's some information up on the bulletin board, and I hope that some of you will join me there. One of the exciting things about that particular work has been the number of clergy involved, from a diversity of faiths, backgrounds, identities, and parts of the city. 
It feels really good to be involved in such a broad coalition. And so I had that feeling, that little public witness high, as I sat in the D.C. City Council chambers a few weeks ago and waited for my turn to testify. And waited, and waited, and waited. I was 76th on the list of public witnesses who included not just clergy, but D.C. residents, lawyers, experts in the field, some of those who would be affected by the bill. It turns out that even when witnesses have only three minutes each to speak, it still actually takes quite some time to get to number 76. I had thought that I might duck out, do some work on the laptop I'd brought along, return some calls while the other witnesses talked. But I found the testimony so interesting, the stories so moving, I ended up staying and sitting through the six hours it took to get to my turn. It was around hour four that I heard something that made my ears perk up. An Episcopal priest, part of the same clergy coalition, was testifying about why he thought marriage equality was important, talking about the families in his congregation who needed and wanted legal marriage, the issues of fairness and equality at the heart of the bill, and his conviction that his God was one of love, a God who welcomed all people. I was smiling along with him, proud to be part of the same group that he represented. And then one of the attending council members asked a follow-up question. Why, this council member asked, were there so many clergy there? He respected the priest's opinion. He agreed with his position on the issue. He planned to vote for the bill. He just didn't understand why he should be listening to a religious argument about what he saw as a civil issue. It suddenly occurred to me that this was a really good point. Why should he listen to religious arguments about something that was really just about equality? I certainly didn't want the council members listening to all the religious arguments against marriage equality, the clergy who were saying that same-sex marriage went counter to their beliefs and counter to religious values. In those cases, I was happy to respond with something along the lines of, hey, we have separation of church and state in this country. Keep your religion out of city council chambers. <laughs> hmm. But if that was the case... What was I doing in city council chambers? Why had I been sitting there for four hours waiting to testify about how my religious values were key to my support for marriage equality? And why did I think that any public officials ought to listen to me? This, it seems, is at the heart of our sometimes confusing relationship with church-state involvement. It always seems perfectly appropriate when we are the ones advocating for something based on our religious convictions, but terribly wrong when we see other people doing it. I have done my share of complaining about the alignment of the religious right and the political right, about the intrusion of this narrow set of religious values, many of them about personal morality and behavior, into the political landscape of America. And the truth is, I do disagree with that intrusion. I do worry about the separation of church and state when we base our civil actions on religious convictions. That separation is actually one of the core values of ethical culture and indeed of many liberal religious movements. 
I was recently invited to serve on the board of the Americans for Religious Liberty, and I accepted because of that value, because I find the work that they do so important. Just yesterday, I read about a lawsuit threatened against a council member in Asheville, North Carolina, who is an atheist, something that is, on the books at least, illegal. North Carolina, like many states, including Maryland, still officially requires belief in God from elected officials. In some places, these may be old laws, no longer much noticed, but in Asheville, at least to the opponents of this particular elected official, and I'm sorry to say to the folks who lost to him, the laws feel very much alive. This council member, by the way, may be an atheist, but he is also a churchgoer, the Unitarian Universalist Church of Asheville. They are, I hope and imagine, standing behind him. And so now we get into tricky territory again. Who is in the right and who in the wrong when one religious group backs a certain issue and another fights against it? And why should we be involving ourselves in all these matters of the political and civil world anyway? For me, the answer lies in human nature. All of us, whether we are religious or secular, left or right, all of us experience the world and form our opinions based on our deepest values. For many people, those values are rooted in the religion that they practice, whether that means church on Sunday or sitting zazen on Tuesday night. And so it makes sense that we see political life civil life through those lenses too, that we refer back to our values when we look at the current issues around us. This grounding in religious values has been true throughout America's history. We've always had a slightly uneasy relationship with that church-state separation. And many times, religious values have led to what I would call some of the great justice struggles and movements forward of the last 200 years. The civil rights movement in the last century, with its roots in church culture and especially church music, comes to mind. But so too do the great reform movements of the 19th century, many of them products of the Christian social gospel tradition. And in the last five years, there has been indeed a rebirth of interest in the links between religious values and what some might call progressive political goals. Rabbi Michael Lerner of Tikkun Magazine wrote the wonderful book, The Left Hand of God, calling for that rebirth. He lays out what he calls a spiritual covenant with America and calls on progressives to claim spiritual language as their own, to speak their values with pride and work together to create a world that lives up to the vision they see, the vision of a world made whole with all her people free. Lerner's book is subtitled, Taking Back Our Country from the Religious Right, but it's really an argument for religious and spiritual input in civic life, not against it. He imagines a rebirth not just of that connection, but of the progressive spiritual movement more generally. Seeing around him a materialistic and empty culture, Lerner writes, it is the search for meaning in a de-spiritualized world that leads many people to right-wing religious communities, 
because these groups seem to be in touch with the sacred dimension of life. As much as encouraging spiritual progressives to get involved in civic life, Lerner is also encouraging those who find themselves on the left side of the political spectrum to, to borrow a phrase, get religious about it. Lerner has a big vision, and it's an appealing one, to me at least. He writes about his vision of a transformed society, that it is, quote, the path most likely to bring back into politics those whose souls yearn not only for justice and peace, but also for connection to the deepest truths of the universe. The world is a mystery, says Lerner. Those who are absorbed in that mystery, responding with awe and radical amazement to the universe, can bring into our public life a dimension of wisdom we badly need. Well, sign me up. A world where deep spiritual values and profound justice work meet is one I want to live in. And of course, that world is by no means foreign to our own tradition. Ethical culturists were leaders on the political and social scene almost immediately after the movement's founding, working on child labor laws, tenement housing, helping to found the NAACP and the ACLU. For many, this is a no-brainer. After all, we do have ethical right there in our name. It's hard to ignore the call to creating justice in the world. I think, though, that we can sometimes get into trouble with that word. Not just because ethical is hard to live up to, although it is, but because in popular American culture, the word has become secularized to a certain extent. I can't tell you how many visitors have told me that they have drove, driven past our building every week thinking we were a nonprofit or a think tank dedicated to puzzling out ethical issues, but not a religious community drawn together by shared values and celebrations and Sunday morning platform services. Ethical culture, of course, was founded to have this kind of broad meaning to be the platform on which all could be united. Ethics, as the grounding of so many world religion, religions, can have a kind of universal appeal. And that is both our gift and, I think, our challenge. Because we are not, after all, a think tank. And we are not just grounded in ethical values. Or rather, our ethical values are not entirely secular ones. They are religious values. They carry a message that may resonate with other ethical and spiritual traditions, but that is also uniquely our own. Our vision of the spark of humanity in each person, that deep, precious worth, that may be something that we share with other religions and with secular folks, but it is also fundamental to who we are. Part of bringing our voice into the public square is being able to claim it, to find that what sings most deeply in our soul and use that as the grounding for our political work. Thinking in this way actually helps me clarify what I think about difficult issues. It's hard for me sometimes to look at a complicated situation and determine what the ethical answer is. Ethics can depend on the situation. They are often rooted in cultural norms. 
And then the whole idea of pronouncing something ethical, like it has my good housekeeping seal of approval, it feels a little bit intimidating. But when I look at the situation from a religious point of view, when I think about what I know to be true because I feel it to be true, when I transform my idea of ethical into relationship sustaining or honoring human worth, then I begin to see more clearly. Then I can speak from my own experience, calling for deeper justice with the power of all that I hold sacred. This doesn't mean, unfortunately, that I am always right. Even deep religious convictions have been known to lead people astray. But part of what I find to be sacred is the ability to change, to create anew, to experience reawakenings, and sometimes to just plain change my mind. That value placed on the ability to be changed and to change others too is another of those gifts and challenges that we face. On the one hand, it allows us to engage in thoughtful dialogue, to really explore issues, to try to see the other side. That's the idea behind Wes's Spark series, which offers civil discourse on hot-button issues. We can be, and we often are, a place where people disagree. And part of our mission is to hold that disagreement to show that, in the words of the 16th century Transylvanian Unitarian Francis David, we need not think alike to love alike. On the other hand, we do sometimes need to take a position, to draw a line and say that this is where our religious values ask us to stand. Often the trick is figuring out the difference between the two, deciding when we can be the place for honest and open-hearted disagreement and when we pick up our protest signs and start marching. What I hope is that even after the marching, we can still come back and keep having the conversation, keep staying open to learning and to changing. Our values, I think, tell us that both those things are vital to our religious life, to our ethical life together. And in fact, I said as much in the testimony I ended up giving to the D.C. City Council around 9 o'clock that night. I spoke about my religion's belief in the inherent worth of every person, the divine spark that lights each of us. And I spoke about our respect for the separation of church and state, too, about the importance that a civil issue not be unduly influenced by religious beliefs. I needed to speak my truth from the deepest part of my being. And that truth, like many, is complicated. It is a truth that celebrated not just all the witnesses speaking on my side of the issue that night, but also those who spoke on the other side, because it is a truth that encourages free dialogue and thoughtful engagement. And at the same time, it is a truth that says, each person is valuable, equality is important, and I know darn well which side of this issue is the right one. There's one more trick, though, with speaking our religious truth in the public square, and that is that politics deals with practicalities 
with feasibility studies, with more often than not, compromise. And so I recognize that it may be easy enough for me to stand up at a microphone and call for politicians to do the right thing when I'm not the one who has to stay up late and edit the bill or make the deals or work out the concessions that will finally allow the thing to pass. I am emboldened then by something I heard at that first taste of public witness in Annapolis. One of the pastors who spoke before me shared words that I've heard attributed to the Yale chaplain, William Sloan Coffin, a great justice seeker himself. The work of the clergy, he said, was to call for justice to roll down like waters. And it's up to the politicians to figure out the plumbing. <laughs> we all have our roles, friends. Some of you, I know, do help to figure out the plumbing come up with systems and programs that change the lives of people in practical and tangible ways. But all of us, all of us who share a religious and ethical voice can call for justice. As we sit here this morning listening to the rain beating down, I think of that justice that we seek rolling down like water. And I know that we are here to call for yet more rain, to shout that it must pour, soaking the ground with hope, with possibility, with nourishment for a world transformed. I invite you to join me in calling for that world, to raise your voice and speak what you know to be true. And then let justice indeed rain down and rain.